Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and in this episode, we're digging back through the archives from the Chalk Valley History Festival, and we're bringing you a brilliant talk by the one and only Al Murray. He is, of course, best known as his alter ego, the pub landlord, but he's a documentary maker, a published author, an Oxford history grad, and he has a passion for all things World War II. In 2017, he took to the stage at Chalk Valley History Festival, where he spoke about the best-known British commander of all, Field Marshal Bernard Law Montgomery, his favourite topic. Al provides a fascinating and, of course, entertaining assessment of Monty and his command during the defence of El Alamein. Enjoy. Okay. Uh, thank you, James, and thanks for being invited. Um, it is a pleasure and a privilege for me as a comedian to speak to a room full of people who know about history, history enthusiasts, experts about the subject they know far more about than I do. So um, the first thing I want to really get out of the way is I'm not doing my act this evening. You're not going to get any of that stuff. The people know the. People in the front row, you're entirely safe. I won't be working the house. Like, what's your name, by the way? <laughs> Giles, lovely. There you go. Now, uh, and what, what do you do, Giles? <laughs> you work for the National Museum of the Royal Navy. Brilliant. Keep it up. Now, so... Now, the thing is, um, as J- James and I have, we've talked about Monty a lot, and I, am, I think I'm, I best describe myself as a fan of Montgomery, and I'm fascinated by him and his place in British history. I, um, what I'm not is someone who can tell you exactly what happened on the third day of uh, the Second Battle of Al- Alamein. That sort of isn't the thing that interests me about him, in a way. Um, so, as I said, I am a fan to the extent that a while ago, a friend of mine bought me a Monty figure an action man styled as Field Marshal <laughs> Montgomery. It's actually, it's not bad, it's uncanny. Um, how if you, uh, a few years ago, he, he came on tour with me, Monty did, and if you force the perspective on a phone camera, he takes quite good pictures. He photographs pretty well, does Monty. So here he is at the Angel of the North, when we were uh, up north a while ago. There we are. <laughs> That's uh, Monty on the, uh, on the A1M, passing Sunderland. Uh, 
and here he is at baggage reclaim. There we are. <laughs> On his way to Jersey. And, uh, and now what we're going to add to the collection is uh, Monty addressing, inspecting the Chalk Valley History Festival, which will appear... In fact, let's put in... Let's have him gesticulating, which will appear... In fact, he's pointing at Giles and inspecting him and saying the Navy arm isn't what it was. There we go. Uh, fantastic. And uh, that will be on Twitter later. So, um, I am a... I, like I say, I'm a fan. Now, so to begin with, um, I want to offer you some quotes on Monty, most of which are close to the event. So they're box fresh with the man himself and the impression he made on people, rather than being perhaps a thing written by a historian 60 years later trying to carve out book sales. So, let's start with one of his bosses. And being his boss was something that was really straightforward. In, in fact, it's hard to argue with any of this, this next uh, quote. Montgomery is a first-class trainer and leader of troops on the battlefield with a fine tactical sense. He knows how to win the loyalty of his men and has a great flair for raising morale. He rightly boasted that after the Battle of Alamein, he never suffered a defeat. And the truth is that he never intended to run the risk of a defeat. That's one reason why he was cautious and reluctant to take chances. There is, however, much to be said for his attitude when we consider that up to October 1942, we had not won a single major battle since the start of the war, except Archie Wavell's operations against the Italians and some local victories against the Axis forces in the Western Desert. Yet I can't disguise that he was not an easy man to deal with. For example, administrative orders issued by my staff were sometimes objected to. In other words, Monty wanted to have complete independence of command and do what he liked. Still, no serious difficulties arose over these very minor disturbances. He was always reasonable when tackled. And that's General Harold Alexander in his memoirs. So, that's, prof that's professionalism personified, tact itself. And of course, it, it comes from someone who Monty didn't at any point describe as quite useless. So, <laughs> so in itself, it's quite instructive. There's no grudge there. Because what Monty did was he went, blundered through the army, generating grudges as he went. But then, of course, came back to bite him later. Now, here's the view from the other side of the hill, literally. I thought he was very cautious, considering his immensely superior strength. But he is the only field marshal in this war who won all his battles. In modern mobile warfare, the tactics are not the main thing. The decisive factor is the organisation of one's resources to maintain the momentum. Now, that's Wilhelm von Thoma in Basil Little Hart's book, The Other Side of the Hill, which was published in 1948, in which Little Hart discussed the war with captured German generals. That's a revealing quote for sure, but it, you might say anything if you were being held prisoner by Basil Little Hart. Now, here's another boss. I, you can't talk to me like that, Monty. I'm your boss. Eisenhower said that to him at one point during a row in the autumn of 1944. Another one of his bosses said this, in defeat, unbeatable, in victory, unbearable. <laughs> now, that was Winston Churchill, so he can speak for himself. Now, a critic, a writer, Ernest Hemingway had something to say about Montgomery in his novel Across the River and Into the Trees. It features a Montgomery cocktail, which is a mix of 15 parts gin to one part vermouth, supposedly the numerical advantage Monty needed to go into battle. <laughs> but I'd suggest that when discussing Montgomery, it's best to go to the real expert. And there is no greater expert on Montgomery than Montgomery himself. A platoon of 30 men, if you allow the impression, right? 
Makes me feel comfortable on stage. A platoon of 30 men, leadership of men in battle. I found then that what you could do with those 30 men would depend entirely on me. And if I could gain their confidence and their trust and their respect, they needn't necessarily like me. And this is, I think, what this all comes down to. Whether you liked Monty or not, a lot of the history that's written about him seems to be, a, to a great extent, a question of taste. So, what was he like? Well, let's have a look. Have a little look at a bit of Monty in interview to see exactly what he was like. Montgomery. An interview with Field Marshal, the Viscount Montgomery of Alamein. Just in case you were wondering. With the Lord Taylor of Harlow. <laughs> During the past few days, uh, Memorial University of Newfoundland has had the privilege of having as its guest Field Marshal Montgomery of Alamein. Field Marshal Montgomery Many of you, those of you who are under 21, will not remember the days of the war, the dark days of the war, when he was leading the Allied forces, and in particular the British Army and the armies of the Dominions, to begin the great conquest of Nazi Germany. Wars are horrible business, and the field marshal, but it sometimes is necessary. Unfortunately for Britain, we seem sometimes to have thrown up the man to meet the occasion. And I think we were very fortunate indeed that in those dark days, Field Marshal Viscount Montgomery of Alamein was in command. Now, Field Marshal, I want to ask you something straight away about, uh, about I've noticed that great men have very great and very surprising mothers very often. Is this the case with you? Well, I certainly had a mother with a very dominant willpower. And I think that as a boy, I was pretty bad. I had, I had a willpower too. And my early life was a series of, of clashes between my mother and myself. And I don't think it was good. So I, I, I don't think really that my mother influenced me except to make me feel afraid of her which is not good. Now, all my love and affection as a, as a boy, a young boy, was given to my father, who was a bishop, and he took no part in the handling of the family. He was always a communing with the angels, whatever they do, bishops, you see. <laughs> and he had no part at all in it. And my mother used to give him 10 shillings a week, and if he wanted another shilling, he had to go on his knees to get it. We had no money. We were a family of nine, and at a very early age, I disappointed my parents by saying that I wanted to be a soldier. Well, thank goodness you did. <laughs> now, you have been, ever since, uh, in command of men. Yeah. And uh, in the First World War, you were in command of a very small group of men. Started like that. Yeah. I went out to the First War in 1914, commanding a platoon of 30 men. Now, that was my first uh, introduction to leadership of men in battle. I had been commanding uh, in peacetime, not the same thing, was it? 
And I found then that uh, what you could do with those 30 men would depend entirely on me. And if I could gain their, their confidence and their trust and the, their respect, they needn't necessarily like me, not necessarily, their respect, then the greatest achievements became possible within that little group. Well, as I went up the ladder and I commanded a company in battle and a battalion, and I commanded, a, I finished up the first war as chief of staff of a division, but later on I commanded the brigade and a division and an army corps and an army and a group of armies, two million men. Two million men, that was the biggest... Normandy. The biggest single number you commanded. Yeah, because I had, you see, for Normandy, I had all the American armies under me, <coughs> and uh, the total number, really, by the time we finished up the Battle of Normandy, was a matter of two million men. Now, uh, I found, of course, that bottled up inside men are great emotional forces. And it may be the same with your students here. They have certain emotional forces, and they've got to be given an outlet. And that outlet must be positive and constructive and must warm the heart and excite the imagination. That is the thing, you see. I also found that uh, the soldiers, having been through both wars, the soldiers of the Second War were totally different people to those of the First War because they were educated. You see, the, in the First War, the, I think the, uh, the best recruiting sergeant was starvation off the streets. You didn't enlist in the army unless you were starving for the soldiery. So naturally, you see, we went out to the First War and they did what they were told. And the, the, the generalship, I always think, of the First War would not have done in the Second War with these highly educated people who could think and appreciate and wanted to know what was going on. Now, in this First World War, the generalship was really uh, seen to operate regardless of loss of life. It seemed the most brutal kind of generalship and an unreal kind of generalship. Is this a fair comment? Oh, it is, yes. What they would call the, the good fighting generals, you see, of the First War, were really the generals who uh, had the most casualties. I mean, for instance, I took, battle, took part in the Battle of the Somme in July 16, and there were 30,000 men killed before lunch. Before lunch, you see. And a frightful battle, really. And uh, that had... Uh, now, at Alamein, for instance, I fought for 12 days, Alamein, and my total casualties in 12 days were just 13,000, you see. It can be done. When you say 13,000, that 13,000 killed or 13,000 killed and wounded? All categories. How many killed? I should think about a third. All categories. Killed, wounded, missing, and so on, you see. Staggering, isn't it? Well, that can be done, you see. And I think also, of course, that in the First War, what I would call the, the good fighting generals, they weren't professional, real professionals. I, I was so horrified by this, what went on at Cashendale, and all these, uh, these dreadful things, that uh, I got very badly wounded, you see, and I had, uh, when I lay in hospital, pondering over this matter, I came to the conclusion that war was a highly professional business, and there is no room in war for the amateur. So I decided that I must study my profession and get right down to it, and I gave up everything, everything. I took no part in social life, 
I worked. I didn't get married till I was uh, 40. Never went out with girls. Nothing. I wasn't interested in girls. <laughs> but now, if you take the... Um, how did you manage? You faced... You could lead your 40 men or your small group and they all knew you personally. Yeah. How did you get them to know you when you were commanding these millions of men? Could you do it? Yes, it can be done. For instance, when I went out to the desert, I found that the generals, the soldiers, didn't know their generals. The only general the soldiers knew was Wallow. Well, I said, that is no good. They're going to know me. Because mm -hmm. I knew the, the type of man, you see, we were now having to fight the wars of Britain. And I made myself known to the soldiers. I would talk to them. I'd go and see them. Now, when we went, uh, and that went right away through in the 8th Army, and when we were at home, you see, and I had my British armies, Canadian army, and all the Americans, about two million, <coughs> I went home from the 8th Army, and nobody knew me. And the soldier said, who, who is this guy, Montgomery? We've heard of some chap who in the desert who wears a beret with two, two badges on it. <laughs> Let us have a look at him. I knew this. So I decided, having, having formed the plan and got it working, got it going, I left it entirely to my staff. And I traveled England and Scotland, showing, uh, talking to the soldiers. And I would talk to 20,000 at one go. I would go and talk to them from uh, standing on the, the bonnet of a jeep with a loudspeaker, and then I would say, now, come around me closer. Let's have a look at each other. And they would all rush forward, and the officers generally got swamped. You know. <laughs> but they liked it. And I don't think, I think, it's, I, think I can say that uh, no man went across to Normandy who hadn't seen me and heard me speak. Now, I hoped, of course, I hoped <laughs> that they would approve. <laughs> I hoped it. Perhaps it was rather too much to hope. Anyhow, I think they did approve, really, in the end. They, they said, well, this guy looks all right. They hadn't done any fighting, you see. They knew I had. They knew that as far as battle was concerned, I knew my stuff, you see. And that, I think, was a... Did you, know, did you ever lose a battle? So, I think you've got an idea of what he was like. Um, he could be very droll. He could be uh, ruthlessly uh, single-minded in self-promotion. He was profoundly vain, as we've seen here. But one of the, th one of the things I think you, you realise about Montgomery as you look at his life is that he was, as he said, totally focused on being a soldier to the exclusion of everything else. Um, there's loads more in that video. It's worth checking out. It's on, it's on, it's on YouTube. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, uh, he gets into the merits of Scip Scipio Africanus, um, how hopeless the youth of today are. Um, he re Monty reveals that Chairman Mao is a very good friend of mine and that the Americans have made a terrible mess in Vietnam because they know how, have no political aim in what they're doing militarily. So, plus ça change. Right. So why Monty? Why am I fascinated by him? Um, Bernard Law Montgomery is a figure at the centre of British victory in the Second World War, but a faded figure in British memory of that war. And despite and because of all this, his reputation, I think, has been traduced, his achievements run down, his memory obscured. He's a man who could, in our history, be a Wellington, a Marlborough, a Rommel even. But he's no such thing. He's had the lot thrown at him. A lousy general, a terrible father, a vain mountebank, a closet homosexual, a possible paedophile. That one always seems to me to be the sort of 
thrown in to complete the set of the sort of stuff you have to say about people to discredit them. There's nothing Montgomery hasn't been accused of. The person responsible for most of this, more than anyone else, is, of course, Montgomery. Unlike Churchill, who set out to ensure that history would be kind to him by writing the history and then succeeded, Montgomery's attempt to massage the record and tilt the history books in his favour can best be described as a, as a failure. It backfired colossally. Has Churchill's reputation survived because he did a better job of, of massaging the record? Or is his track record less vulnerable? Or is it somehow because he's too big a figure? For what it's worth, I think it's a combination of A and C. Or is it because Monty was so bad at rewriting the history? Well, yes. Montgomery comes packed with ironies. So it's deliciously ironic that Monty, who was so keen on using his image as part of his generalship, has ended up with his image so badly tarnished. This image, of course, was forged in his reputation as the victor of El Alamein. Now, this victory was part and parcel of the notion that he liked to promote, that he was a leader whose self-possessed belief in his talent as a general would inspire confidence in his men. This was the stall he set out for Eighth Army and beyond. Now, there's one tiny problem with this legend, is that Monty was second choice for Eighth Army at the time. He'd, of course, got the job because the man who was meant to command Eighth Army, William Gott, had been shot down and killed before he could take up the post. So, had Gott not been shot down, would this talk now be about Gott? Would Gott have said, I want to impose on everyone that the bad times are over, they are finished, our mandate from the Prime Ministers to destroy the Axis forces in North Africa. It can be done and it will be done. Would he have done that? Would his leadership style have worked in the same situation? Would he have made, would Gott have made the difference that Alexander and Brooke noticed within a week of uh, his arrival with Eighth Army? After all, as much Recent scholarship of the Second Battle of El Alamein has shown Montgomery inherited an improving situation just as Rommel's began to fatally and inevitably deteriorate. So would Gott have exploited this same changing set of circumstances the same way? Well, whatever is the answer to that. El Alamein was the starting point of the Monty legend, not just consumers of the le for not just consumers of the legend, but for the man himself. Why else in later life did he style himself Montgomery of Alamein? At the end of his life, he was heard saying he'd have to explain to God about all the men he'd killed at Alamein. So here's the problem. We're talking about legend rather than history, and legend has a habit of detaching itself from history pretty swiftly and doing its own thing, and there's not a lot you can do about it. The Monty legend means that convincing people to change their minds or even distract them from comparing him to Slim or Alexander, and if I mention Monty on Twitter, for instance, some will immediately pop up and say Slim was better, or the Orc, or Clark, or Patton, or Bradley, which is probably the best American comparison, or the, the American com comparison most worth making. Or Rommel, even. I mean, this one is worth making, as a comparison goes. Or Student, or Kessering, or Von Rundstedt, or whoever. I think it may be a futile task to get people to stop doing that. But at least thinking about this legend and why it built up, what it says about war and how history and culture process war is maybe a more worthwhile exercise. It matters military. Does it matter that Monty was tactless? That he was vain? And while his critics have little to be positive to say about him, and his family relationships after his beloved wife died can best be described as arid, fractured and collapsed, many of those close to him paid, paid him and were returned deep respect. So why is there a controversy? Why is the legend so complex? Apart from the important business of uh, publishing books and burnishing authors' reputa reputations. I don't have a book out about this, I'm just talking about it anyway. Is it... Is it a legacy of the careers he thwarted, the feelings he hurt, or less trivially, the mistakes he made in battle? Or is Monty's tarnished reputation part and parcel of the British declinist post-war cringe? 
Well, it's certainly the legacy of Monty's own aforementioned terrible lack of tact. His memoirs, published in 1958, while full of obfuscation, as well as necessary secrecy about Ultra, are possibly one of the most nakedly revealing set of memoirs you can read. Monty displays himself in his lurid ghastliness, his insistence on having been right all along about everything having always gone according to plan. It didn't take a historian or biographer to lay Monty's faults bare, he did it himself. In his repeated insistence that everything had gone according to plan, he cancelled out the possibility that he might be a general who could respond flexibly to changing circumstances, which he actually was. If you look at his conduct of El Alamein and Normandy, they're testament to that. There's no false modesty in his memoirs, no reputational face-saving. In eviscerating others, Montgomery reveals his flaws loud and proud, as well as begging that they be exploited by others. It's worth a read for that alone, before you get into what he gets wrong as well as what he got right. And he can be candid in his memoirs about what he got wrong, in a way that's quite disarming. For instance, on Arnhem, and this is a man renowned for his arrogance. This is a man who supposedly never got anything wrong. On Arnhem, about where so much ink has been spilt about what went wrong, he says this. There were many reasons why we didn't gain complete success at Arnhem. The following, in my view, were the main ones. First, the operation was not regarded at Supreme Headquarters as the spearhead of a major Allied movement on the northern flank, designed to isolate and finally to occupy the Ruhr. And I think it's hard to argue with that. Second, the airborne forces at Arnhem were dropped too far away from the vital objective, the bridge. It was some hours before they reached it. I take the blame for this mistake. This is a man with a reputation, apparently, for being arrogant and unable to take responsibility. Four, third, the weather. Fourth, the second SS Panzer Corps were refitting in the Arnhem area, having limped up there after its mauling in Normandy. We knew it was there, but we were wrong in supposing that it could not fight effectively. Its battle state was far beyond our expectation. It was quickly brought into action against the 1st Airborne Division. So there he is, his greatest howler, for many of his critics, is, is Arnhem, where, of course, he broke with his ponderous style and tried to do something dashing, uh, to, under a great deal of pressure to do so, and he admits the fault and the error. That, got, for me, chimes against the, the, the image, and it's there in his memoirs. The following year... Um, th now, these memoirs, of course, for all their candour, intended or otherwise, led to legal action from Auchinleck, who objected to Monty, saying that he'd intended to abandon the position his position at El Alamein. Monty was subsequently forced to go on the radio and thank the Orc for stabilising the position at El Alamein. So Monty was quite capable of putting his foot in it and admitting he was wrong. Um, a little bit of colour here. The following year he also said anyone who votes Labour should be locked up. Now, <laughs> but there's more to this than just his tactlessness. Aside from his own contribution to damaging his reputation, before any rivals had a go at him or historians took Carlo Deste or Corelli Barnett-sized chunks out of him, is what, is what happened to, to Montgomery and his reputation part of the process that societies undergo when dealing with war? Emblematic as he was of the brutality of war, of the decisions and mistakes paid for in blood that get made, as well as the lies, the dissembling, the ego clashes that war demands, is the casting out, as it were, of Montgomery and his reputation part of how we get over the business of war, especially in a democracy. Haig's reputation suffered far worse and has barely been re rehabilitated, despite people's best efforts. Is this an echo of that same process in action? The Monty irony here, of course, is that he'd seen this happen to the generals of the Great War and it had informed his approach to his personal leadership style. So, Unable to control this, is a high-profile general in a way, is it part of their role, is it their destiny to end up ignored, forgotten, 
reviled? Is this the price of being the field marshal, to be something like a sin eater, a scapegoat, a lightning rod? War's corruption of everything it touches doesn't spare the generals and their reputations. You will have to wonder how fair this is, given that generals can only fight the wars that politicians send them to fight with the equipment they provide for them. Though, of course, the generals are going to say yes, aren't they? The British Army of Liberation that Monty led from Normandy to the Baltic, in t- whose TAC HQ he took the German surrender, the same army that's criticised for being slow, cautious, ponderous, tactically inferior to its enemies and its allies, and that Monty's plans and leadership style, though often it was Dempsey's execution thereof, has inevitably become analogous with. These are, of course, the products of British society and politics at the time. They don't stand alone. They don't exist outside a cultural or political context. We've seen Monty on that video talk about the quality of the men he had to deal with in the 40s, a subject that was at the forefront of army thinking at the time. But there's more to it than that. There's the army's inglorious track record to consider and the foundations that the British Army Liberation was being built on. It had to be built on the catastrophic defeats of Dunkirk and Singapore with an eye to manpower shortages, the political risk of high casualty rates and post-war rebuilding. But it also had to make do with bolt-action rifles, tanks of wildly varying quality, its own internal regimental tensions and doctrinal eccentricities, as well as having to attack, maintain the initiative rather than defend. Its experience units found that West, northwestern Europe was nothing like the desert, imagine that, and its brand new units had to learn the realities of war from a standing start. All of this is a tall order. And that the British found a general who could take on this task from start to finish is remarkable enough in itself. That he made mistakes is perhaps the least interesting thing about Montgomery. How much he got right is, of course, not as good a story. This peculiar, monomaniac, deliberate, self-consciously professional soldier who was in the right place at the right time throughout his life. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, we saw that he was a, he was a son of a bishop. He was uh, injured in the First World War very badly. He was shot through the lung and the... Uh, a soldier ran out to rescue him and was then shot by the same sniper and lay on Montgomery and then the sniper continued to fire into the, into the two of them and the soldier was killed, died on top of Montgomery. Montgomery told his men not to come out and rescue him. And eventually he was rescued at night um, and a grave was dug for him because they thought he was going to die. And he took from this, as we saw in the video, war is a professional business, that men die, that it's too important to be left to the amateurs. So he generates this reputation as a, as a workaholic staff officer during the First World War. He's not allowed to return to the front. And of course, his injury is the thing that saved his life and that saved him for the Second World War. Because if he'd been found fit, he'd have probably gone back to the front as a subaltern and then may well have suffered the fate that, most, that, that, that young subalterns did during the First World War. So he, he rebuilds himself as this ultimate professional. During the interwar years, he, he, he has, a, he has a, a difficult time in the army because he wants to talk shop and no one else does. He's an unpopular man in an army which, if you've read Dave, David Niven's book, um, uh, uh, his experiences in Malta, which are all to do with gin and, ton and cricket, gin and tonic and cricket, bear little to relation to Monty trying to talk about encounter battle and write an infantry manual. But he had a varied career, and there are three incidents in Montgomery's career that almost ended it. And I want to just take you through these as a sort of measure of the man we're dealing with here, that you may not have heard these stories. The first incident was before he set off for Palestine to take command of the 8th Infantry Division in October 1938, Monty decided he needed to raise funds for his, the Men's Married uh, Families Welfare Fund. So he came up with a solution and without consulting the War Office, he rented out the regimental football pitch to Portsmouth City Council. Now word of this got to the War Office, he found himself in a corner, it was it demanded that the money be returned and it had been spent. He had to prove at the moment his career was on the cusp of divisional command that none of the money had gone to the officer's mess and could all be accountable. Now this, would have, this, this kind of thing had ruined officers before. So just before the war he nearly completely blows it because he doesn't see why he should have to put up basically with a lot of army bullshit. The second uh, is an, a further example of this. Um, this is the infamous order of the day from 1940. I'll read it to you, uh, and you can see why he got into trouble. My view is that if a man wants to have a woman, let him do so by all means. But he must use his common sense and take the necessary precautions against infection. Otherwise, he might become a casualty by his own, by his own neglect, and this is helping the enemy. There are in Lille a number of brothels, and which are properly inspected, and where the risk of infection is practically nil. These are known to the military police, and any soldiers in need of horizontal refreshment would be well advised to ask a policeman for a suitable address. <laughs> now, this is, on the, this is on the eve of the Battle of France, right? And I, personally, that, that seems perfectly sensible to me. It seems perfectly sensible to all of us, I think. He's, he's absolutely... This is another example of Monty being absolutely right, everyone else being wrong, and it being hard to disagree with him. But 
1940 we're talking about, and this, this made its way to the BEF senior chaplain, who then tried to get, moved to get Montgomery fired. And uh, uh, Brooke had to intervene as his corps commander and save him and give him a tremendous bollocking. And uh, Mon Monty's account of that is that Brooke comes to see him and, and gives him a, a massive dressing down. And then Monty says, yes, but you know, I do have a point, and it was terribly well written, wasn't it? <laughs> so Brooke has to dress him down all over, start all over again. Dress him down all over again. Brooke's diary states, it's a great pity that he spoils his very high military ability by a mad desire to talk or write nonsense. And this is an indication of their relationship and Brooke's patronage that then extends into the rest of the war and it's how Monty gets the jobs he gets and is protected later in life when he causes all sorts of political difficulties for himself with our allies. And then, this is my favourite story, is the story of the pig. Montgomery's career was nearly ruined by a pig. Four years later, in the summer of 1944, a month into the Battle of Normandy, the personal tensions between Montgomery and the members of Chafe, in particular Air Marshal Tedder, who loathed Montgomery and intrigued against him regularly, reached a special low point. Monty's buffer was uh, Francis Freddie de Gangon, on whom he relied uh, to unruffle feathers and smooth over difficulties. And he sometimes had very peculiar things to deal with, and this is the example, the pig. Attached by de Gangon to Monty's TAC HQ at Blay was the Colonel Leon Leo Russell, a staff officer. Monty had made sure that his TAC HQ was his own personal fiefdom alone and didn't like to be interfered with from above. He'd often, if Churchill would ask if he could come and visit, he'd say no. Because he wanted to be left alone and left to it to run the battle his way. On arriving at TAC HQ, this officer, the Colonel Leon Leo Russell, saw a bloodied pig running through the grounds of the TAC HQ. At dinner, he declared he wouldn't be eating the pig. It was loot. Outrage followed. Colonel Russell found pens of animals on the premises at the back, behind, behind the mess tent, as well as a piano. He drew his own conclusions. A farmer was bribed, then paid two pounds for the pig to try and hush things up. Monty and Russell had a confrontation. Are you accusing my men of looting? Yes, once I've enough evidence to put together a court-martial, said Russell. Now, this ended up in a six-page report detailing all of the local livestock and everything else that Brooke Russell had found disgraceful about the TAC HQ. De Gangor made sure this memo never got to Brooke. Now, this all happened on the eve of Operation Goodwood, and it seems remarkably naive of Colonel Leon Leo Russell and a perfectly example of the sort of stuffy, unnecessary army stuff that Monty had hated between the wars and jibed against, as well as his ability to rub people up the wrong way. Now, the thing is, I think what Monty offers us, in a way, and you've probably almost heard enough from me, as, as a historical figure, I think Monty, in a way, offers us the great declinist conundrum, if we're talking about the historiography of the Second World War. In fact, I'd argue that he's paradigmatic of the declinist conundrum. Um, he, 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 the negatives are all marshalled against him. His positives are blithely ignored. His personal failings are refracted as greater than his successes. His errors brought to overshadow the things that he got right. So the Monty conundrum is this. If he was so slow, tactless, ponderous, spiteful, boastful, and so on, how did he get the job? How did he retain it? And how, of course, did he win? And by extension of this, if the British army was so crummy, how did it win? This is the heart of the problem with this declinist approach to history, British military history, I think. 
I mean, after all, the Allies did win the war. And we know that the, the, we can say, yes, the balance of the fighting was in Russia or the preponderance of American uh, might after August of 44, but the British army still performed very well. I mean, you can't, can argue, of course, it's the bloke in charge on the other side. But there is this peculiar idea, of course, a hint, a suggestion, a whiff of a feeling that somehow by using the advantages, the situation accord them, the Allies were somehow able somehow able to be wanting in the seemingly more admirable things like tactical handling or kit. And this, of course, goes with Monty's style, as represented by Hemingway's cocktail. He was doing what he could to protect his own men's lives first. He was doing what the British Army had decided between the wars they were going to do. Let the machine do the fighting. Let the metal take the strain, not the man. I mean, you could put this in short. If the German army is the greatest army the world has ever seen, etc., how did Monty beat it? If he was such a terrible general, how did he win? If the British army was so crap that he had to moderate it and its fighting style, how did it win? By using its material superiority? Well, what's wrong with that? And how is that terrible generalship? So, of course, this means his mistakes, his personality, have to take the strain when criticising him. And luckily, of course, there's plenty of that to work with. For me, Montgomery, if I had to sum him up, he's like a Churchill tank, tried out in the desert, faintly reminiscent of the First World War, not as glamorous or perhaps speedy as some of the American equivalents, or flashy as the German, but mainly obsolete from mid-May 1945. And as he said to Ed Murrow when discussing the Normandy campaign after the war, or rather as he snapped to Ed Murrow, we won, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Thanks very much. Some questions? Yes, I'll, well, ask away. Thank you. We're Thank happy you. to do Thank some you. questions. Thank you. Hello. Hi. Yes. Uh, do, do you think if 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 Strafer got hadn't 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 been shot down in forty two? Well, yeah. In terms, do you think? Um, because, I mean, got has been derided by a few people himself subsequently. Some some people said he he was too good a man to have been a been a, a, a proper soldier soldier and yeah. and this and the hand of God seems to have moved uh, seems to take intervened and removed Got at the point yeah. at Montgomery. So that's what one uh, historian said. Um, but do you think he would handle it differently, or would things gone better or worse? Or well, I don't, I, I, it, there were some people saying that Gott was worn out by the time that by the time he came up for the job, and Monty had been assigned uh, running, the, leading the torch landings. So he, at some point, Montgomery would have would have featured. But he, but it, it, as I said earlier, it's all it is all around El Alamein. I expect Gott would have fought probably a similar battle with the with a similar outcome. But he may not have done it in Montgomery's style, and he may not have done it with Montgomery's style. And the, the, the thing Montgomery brings to all of this is this extraordinary ability to, to inspire people that, with confidence that what was going to happen next was exactly what he wanted to happen next, which, of course, is where he comes unstuck later on reputationally. But I think it, yeah, it, you, can't, you, know, you can't get into the idea of the hand of God removed God and all that, and fate intervened, blah, blah, blah. I think it's absurd, because the other thing is, is, is that I don't know that, that Gott would have had such firm patronage from Brooke, because it was Brooke who said he thought Gott was worn out. So the moment Gott had, Gott had shown, you know, generals were being fired up to that point very readily. So if Gott had shown any wobble, he'd have gone. So I don't know. I mean, you know, the, the, the what ifs, the counterfactuals are, are fun, but they're, 
I haven't got the answer to that one, sorry. <laughs> I don't know. Anyone else? There's one back there, yeah. I get the impression that uh, Montgomery didn't get on very well with Patton. Um, do you think a lot of uh, that uh, Montgomery's uh, reputation has suffered at the hands of the Americans? Yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks. Oh, my point, by the There's way. No point in elaborating on that. Elaborating on that. Well, no. The, the 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 big problem with coalition warfare is if one side becomes um, the major partner, then it's going to it, that's going to generate problems. And of course, Monty was very clear to point out several times the two million men. He wanted to say, I was in charge of the whole thing at one point, you know. And of course, his promotion to field marshal was essentially a demotion to, to, to buff him up and give him his baton and say, look, there you are, you've made it. So that the, the, the restructuring, um, how the war in, Europe, in, in France was going to be run with the, an American preponderance. It, I mean, that had to happen politically. And therefore, that, that then backfire, that goes into the American generals bickering and arguing. You know, because they're arguing for resources, they're arguing, they're arguing for reputation, they're arguing for victory. I mean, I don't know if it's Patton in particular. I mean, Montgomery and Bradley had a, had a relationship that, of course, came completely unstuck in January of 1945 when Montgomery gave his infamous press conference saying that the American soldier was as good as any fighting man I've ever known. And, and he was trying to say one thing, and he said something else altogether, and he caused great scandal. So, I mean, I, I don't know that uh, people tend to focus on Monty and Patton, and I don't know that the, I don't know it's a particularly good comparison, because Patton would never have been given um, overlord as a job to organize, to organize the D-Day. Like, he wasn't that kind of general. It's kind of not like with like. But, you, but Monty versus the Americans is the more, yes. So back to my original answer. <laughs> uh, yes? It's, it's not a question. It's just to tell you that my father actually fought at El Alamein. Gosh. He was with the Sherwood Rangers, and he, he was um, in the leading scout tank or scout yeah. vehicle that took off for the battle. Goodness me. Mm. Well, thank you Absolutely. for sharing that. And did, did, did I'm he? Very did, proud of oh, you should be. Um, just for you, as a great defender of Montgomery, <laughs> how do you compare him to Slim? Well, it's horses for courses, isn't it? I don't know that um, uh, Slim would have um, been the right person to fight the attritional material schlack that. I mean, it was fascinating early. We had the German veterans this morning. And, uh, and the, the two of them that had fought at Normandy, they've just basically said, well, fighting the Allies was relent this relentless thing of material being bombed, being shelled the whole time. It was completely overwhelming. And I don't know that I don't know that, that was Slim's style. I mean, Slim and Monty both, both developed this very personal general style of, you know, it, it's it, funny hats and... and being seen and all that sort of thing, making themselves visible to their men. Um, and both understood that. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that. I, I mean, I think, I think one of the things that, one of the, things that the, the, the British got in the end managed to get was the right people into the top jobs pretty much across the board and not, and not muff that. You know, that people stop being fired, although Monty's still firing people, obviously. In, Normally, you know, Bucknell goes and all that sort of thing. But, but he's, but he, we, we, we got. I think we got the right people into the right job. So I, I, I'd be loath to compare them, really. I, horses for courses. 
How much of a setback for Monty was? Sorry, how much for a, of a setback for Monty was was Arnhem, and did that shake his confidence? And what was the impact of that? Well, I think I think it. I think what it. I think more than shaking his confidence, what it did was it was it is it basically meant that was the last proper roll of the dice for um, the, uh, the, the British and, the, and Commonwealth forces in an offensive manner, and that we were going to the broad strategy after that, and we were just going to have to do as we were told. And of course, the, the, the great error with, with Arnhem is Antwerp, that he didn't clear the Scheldt, and the, but obviously they didn't know what was happening. The, you, you, you know, Arnhem's born, I think, very much born of the Great Swan, where you've got divisions doing 90 days in a, 90 miles in a day, and this great rolling advance, and the German army apparently completely falling apart. So I think um, Arnhem is, I don't, know if it, I don't know if it dents Monty's confidence, but what it does is it means that's it, no, no more special projects, no more herring off doing your own thing and tr trying to end the, end the war before Christmas. And that surely frustrated him, and, but made him, made him uh, less of adventurous in his plans. But, 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 you know, Arnhem's uncharacteristic because he tries to do something uh, adventurous, which of course isn't his style. Isn't the, 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 so, I don't, I, I don't, I, I don't know about that. But it certainly meant the game over for that sort of uh, mad dash stuff. Why do we uh, know or hear so little about Dempsey? Do you think? How? Well, he didn't. Um, he destroyed his papers and didn't. Um, who, who asked us? This, this disembodied voice. All about that. We destroyed his papers. He didn't write a memoir. So he's kind of gone. And, and Monty's thing, of course, was it was all about Monty. And Dempsey didn't like publicity. There's, I mean, there's, there's photos of them of them together. And you know, Dempsey's looking the other way. He's not interested in being photographed. Not interested in being a, a centre of attention. Very different. Very different style of general. Oh, yes. I just want to offer something. I, I was at a school that um, the headmaster was a captain of Montgomery, so he got Montgomery in, and uh, we renamed the school Montgomery Island Main. The point I want to make is this guy Dennis Beecher was a great headmaster, was absolutely inspired by by uh, yeah. by Montgomery. He was a captain, and he, he thought the world of him. And I think you know, okay, he upset the Americans like hell, but the guys who worked for him, from what I got, thought the world of him. Yeah. Well, he was, you know, the first thing Alexander says, he was brilliant, a brilliant leader of men. And I think, obviously, some people thought he was jumped up, you know, show off. And certainly politicians felt that about it. They were very nervous of his popularity in 1944. Crowds Montgomery drew really, really got the government worried, um, uh, incredibly. Um, but, but, I mean, that, that's, that's very interesting here, because that's, the, I think, the, again, the, the, the key of a big part of it is he inspired people. And we can't relate to that now. His style's from the 40s, it's from another time, and uh, it's like it's in a different language. Yes? Um, not sure if this is, work uh, is working. Um, you alluded to the business around Antwerp and the Skelt. Um, what do you think, do you think Monty made a mistake there, or what's your perception sorry, of I'm, what I'm, ought to have happened? Missed the very, very beginning, sorry. Oh, I beg your pardon. You alluded to... You, you alluded to the battles around Antwerp and leaving Antwerp yeah. and the Scheldt yeah. alone to yeah. move up round into the north of Holland, but what... Do you think that was Monty's mistake, or what was the background to that? Well, the, the thing is, is that... Um, uh, the, the, you know, you're, you're looking at a, a, a very rapidly changing situation. Yes, 
arriving in Antwerp, um, uh, no one knowing, no one having any proper maps, knowing no, no, no one knowing what led where. The Germans being very familiar with, with the place and, and, and the, the layout of Antwerp, st the strategic importance, importance of holding the Scheldt and all that sort of thing. And basically, you've got, you've got this great, chaotic rolling advance after the breakout of Falaise. And, and the, when, when um, Antwerp's taken, it's the same thing. No one knows what's going on. So it, arguably, it, 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 yes, it's Monty's mistake, and I think they missed an opportunity. But it's, his, it's definitely his mistake in not correcting that error as soon as he could and, and wasting his time in Arnhem. Time and materiel and men. And, you know, because after all, all the, all the, all the aircraft used to, to, to fly first Allied Airborne Army in mid-September to Holland should have been in resupply. And if you've got a resupply problem, because you have, because you're still running off the mulberries and everything, all those transport aircraft are being, they're being used on something arguably frivolous, although that's the benefit of hindsight, because of course it goes wrong. But, but, you, but So I don't know that the, the, the day they lost the Scheldt is the mistake. It's the, it's, they're not doing something about it immediately. Uh, what do you think Montgomery's greatest quality was, not just as a general, but as someone who's British? <laughs> Um, the ability to um, pull off a stupid outfit um, <laughs> and pass it off as personal eccentricity. <laughs> oh, there's another one, yes. Um, a lot of successful generals go into politics. Uh, did Monty have any ambitions? No. Thank you. Sometimes the short answers are the best answers. Yes, over there, we've got one over there. At the beginning, you referenced uh, uh, Nelson and Wellington. Mm. Do you, do you uh, obviously you admire him enormously and you made a very strong case for it, but would you put him up in that sort of pantheon of, of great British generals, war leaders? I mean, how... how yeah, yeah I would, I would actually, because, because the interesting thing, I, I think, uh, I, Generalship by by the 40s is having to contend, and, and he talked about it in the t in terms of his troops being better educated and all that sort of thing in the First World War. The actual thing that, that the British Army was having to deal with in the Second World War is that, that the army consisted of the electorate, and they, that was a that was new on it, and that, that we had a democratic people's citizen army here in a, in, in a different context to a conscripted conscripted one in the First World War, you know, because you could vote against conscription in 90, if you want, if you see what I mean. So, so he was having to do things very differently and didn't have the means of compulsion at his disposal that earlier generals had for getting his army to do what he wanted, or in fact his enemies or even some of his allies had to, to get his men to do what he wanted to do. So the leadership element becomes... The, the really important thing, and the thing we've heard about, about him inspiring people and getting people to do extraordinary things. So, so you know, he had to rely on leadership in a way that Wellington never, never would have had to do, and define that and hone that special form of charisma, to, and, and do that, and do command, which of course is different, completely different discipline. You know, we talked about Dempsey earlier on, who was a good at command, but not necessarily a, a leadership general like Montgomery. And I think that, so he had to spin those plates. And I think that's why he should be one of the, he's one of the great captains of, 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 of our, our armies, in the way that Slim is as well. I mean, they're, you know, they're, for me, level pegging completely. You can't have one without the other. 
And they both sort of do the same, the same thing in a different way. So yeah, I think he's a, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I don't mind if people disagree. That's the, you know, it's the, it's the sport of this thing anyway, isn't it? It's that we all disagree. Um, I, I mean, if you'd like, I can give you a little anecdote about Field Marshal Montgomery. I asked my father, who was in Remy in the war, I said, Daddy, why didn't you ever progress above the rank of major? Well, he said, I was playing a lovely poker game with a lot of my friends. And this funny little man turned up saying, his staff car wasn't working. And my father ignored him. And uh, that's why we never progressed above major. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, you're probably in the pattern camp then. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah we've we, we got time for one more. It's getting dark now. Hi, sorry, thank you. Um, I just finished watching Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which is all about family. Yeah. Um, spoilers, sorry. Yeah. And the, uh, the kind of the environment that I understand Montgomery generated was very patriarchal with his captains. He really had mm. like a very familial thing going on. He cared a great deal for them and with the soldiers. So how and why was he so estranged and kind of absent from his own son life? Well, he's, when his, his, his wife died, they were married 10 years, his wife died of a... Of a septicemia from an insect bite. And she'd been an artist and had opened his life to a completely different world of sort of 30s bohemian life. And, and when she died, he sort of, it seems he shut himself down. And he focused on being a soldier with even more ruthless focus than he'd had before he met her. And I think he was able to compartmentalize his military life and invest his military life with um, with uh, sort of this sort of substitute um, uh, emotional uh, relationships in a way that he, ju he just, I mean, basically, he couldn't bear the, the pain of his wife dying. He wouldn't let, he wouldn't let his son come to the funeral um, and all this sort of thing. And I think he, he, he had a, a, a part of his emotional life that he had to seal away forever and lock away forever. And so built and generated this, this fresh family. And you, as you say, at, the TAC, at his TAC HQ, in the last 11 months of the war. They called him the, 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 it was reported to be like a sort of college dining table. They called him the master as his liaison guys came and went. All these young um, amateur soldiers as well. He insisted on people from civilian life as his, as his TAC HQ. And he would generate these very warm relationships, which of course he was in charge of because he was, he was the field marshal. <laughs> And, and everyone was in his, it was in his patronage. And I think that was his, the only emotional framework he could possibly cope with in his life. And uh, one of them was killed right at the end of the war, and he was heartbroken by that, but, but I think in his limited Monty way. And so a big part of his, a big part of how you explain him emotionally, I think, if you're gonna get in, I mean, without trying to psychoanalyze the guy, is his, the death of his wife marks sort of the end of the, the idea of trivial emotion and then he invents a new set to deal with life professionally. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. 
That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.